Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here, back at it again with my good friend, Christian J. Ubius. Christian, it's so good to be back. How are you, my friend? I'm currently in the state of Florida. I'm just going to leave it at that. So not well. I understand. I said nothing of the sort. I guess you just hate Florida. I have nothing against the state of Florida, so... Maybe we can hash this out later. But folks, we are excited to be back here on the show, <laughs> refreshed after a long break, a nice holiday break, got to spend uh, some time away from the podcast, focus on watching movies just for the sake of watching movies. And let me tell you, great feeling, great feeling to watch movies for the sake of watching movies. Christian, what's the best movie you watched in the break? Probably Aliens, the James Cameron film. Look at you. I have not seen any of the Alien movies, so I gotta fix that. <laughs> not, not great. Not great on my end. I watched it a couple of days ago. I wanted. I was lying in bed as one does because you can't do anything else. I wanted to get out of bed and start cheering at one point. I'm kind of excited for Avatar two now, which is good because it comes out in two years. <laughs> gotta start counting down now. Let me tell you, best movie I watched. I saw When Harry Met Sally for the first time. That is rom-com perfection. Goodness gracious. How had I not seen that movie before? So good. So good. Might inspire a future Nora Ephron blend of the month on this show. Yo, God bless Nora Ephron. God bless her indeed. She's dead. What a note. (laughs) What a point of transition. (laughs) We'll pivot away from the sad, the still sad news of Nora Ephron's passing. Into a show that I am very excited about, not only because we're back, it's our first show in a few weeks, but we get to talk about 2020. We get to reflect on the year, share our top 20 lists. It's going to be awesome. But Christian, before we get started and start sharing numbers 20 through 11, I would just love to know your thoughts on 2020 in general. I feel that every movie podcast has probably reflected on it a little bit, but Since we're more focused on just watching movies and reviewing them and sharing our thoughts, not really the industry at large, we don't talk about it as much. So, what were your thoughts on 2020 as a year? We didn't get to spend as much time in movie theaters as, you know, I wish we could have. We got to see a drive-in movie together at one point, which is a blast. But, you know, how's the year? How was the year in general? Okay, this is something I'm thankful of 2020. I, um, 2020 forced me to watch more movies. I think it forced a lot of people to watch more movies. But the beauty of that was that I was able to discover some phenomenal international cinema and just cinema from people whom I had never really known before and who, by watching their amazing work, let me delve deeper into the non-marketed mainstream ways. And when you think of 2020, the number one movie that will probably come out up is Tenet I don't know maybe Mulan and maybe Soul but I think that by not having too many tentpole things marketing didn't know where to go and so you were able to kind of dive into the rabbit hole and find so many fantastic films that because they're not big names don't get to see the light of day with too as many people but not because they're of poor quality Yeah, I really agree, both in terms of watching more movies in general and searching more things out, but it was an awesome year for 
if I can use this word, cinephiles, for people who love movies like us and people who love exploring and trying new things and checking stuff out. If you're a gigantic blockbuster movie, Marvel movie, DC movie, Fast and Furious movies, whatever. Then this year sucked for you. Then this year sucked for you. But if you love movies in general, and look, I am a total sucker for the Marvel movies, but I love them and miss them and still found tons of great things to watch this year. And honestly, more things to watch probably because like you were saying, they got a little more shine just because there wasn't a bunch of stuff playing in theaters. We had to check these things out, whether they were streaming originals or festival favorites that got released later on. There's a chance to watch a ton of different kinds of movies and catch up with old things that we hadn't seen before or that were, you know, personal favorites that we got to follow up on and watch again for the first time in a long time. This show helped me see some movies like that, stuff like The Matrix that I hadn't seen in forever and that I loved, but there's plenty of other stuff that we got to discover. And it was really an awesome year for movies, I think. Not blockbuster in particular, blockbuster movies, but just for the love of the game, if you will, for the love of watching movies. It was an awesome year. Any other thoughts here before we dive into our lists? No, I'm actually kind of excited to just start with our 20 to 11. Amazing. So here's how we're going to structure this show for all you lovely, lovely people listening at home. And hey, if you are out there listening at home, I love you dearly. Thanks for being here. Christian and I have our top 20 of 2020, but because we don't want this episode to go on for four to five hours, we will share our 20 through 11 and just have a couple quick thoughts, maybe one or two sentences a piece on those. And we'll fire them off quickly before we dive into the movies that made our top 10, uh, respectively. So, Christian, we are going to start with your number 20. Actually, just go ahead and uh, go through your list there. Go through your 20 through 11, and I'll share mine. All right, so at 20, I have The Vast of Night, one that we did cover a little bit on this podcast and recommendations episode, a science fiction campfire story about alien abduction, Two solid monologues and a director who knows where to put his camera. At number 19, I have Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, a bleak view of one woman's journey across state lines to get an abortion without her parents' knowledge or permission. Vulnerable and acknowledging a taboo subject rarely seen on screen and rarely presented with the tenderness it has here. At 18, we have Palm Springs, a time loop romance for the ages, exploring the beauty of everyday life. We just need more rom-coms like this, and we need more Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti in life in general. Uh, at 17, I have The Trial of the Chicago 7, rapid-fire dialogue in an ensemble handpicked by the greats present a courtroom drama like you've never seen before. Father, Soldier, Son at 16, a documentary capturing the relationship between a wounded soldier and his sons. It's painful and heartwarming. It's a portrait of life, legacy, and unspoken expectations. At 15, I have The Painter and the Thief, another documentary where a woman befriends the man who stole two of her paintings. And the documentary kind of captures the relationship, weird as it is, that ensues. At 14, I have Blow the Man Down, where a fishing town has a dark underbelly kept secret until a recent murder starts to unravel it and put strain on the women involved. At 13, I have The Boys in the Band. A birthday party devolves into an all-out attack on the secret lives of nine gay men living in 1968 Manhattan. And I don't know if any of you watched The Big Bang Theory, but Jim Parsons is here at his best. 
At number 12, I have Nomadland, a travel film detailing the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis and the wandering humans that chose to carve out a new form of life anchored by a fierce Francis McNorman performance. And at number 11, I have Mangrove, a tale of truth and humanity as it pertains to one black British man's restaurant, The Mangrove. It's jarring and exposed with phenomenal acting and directing. Christian, I may be a jerk, but that's some of the best criticism you've done on the show. All in one or two sentences. <laughs> I can still bring it. That, that was brilliant. Love it. Man, I have some shared movies on that section, and we'll hear about some of them shortly here. A few that I haven't seen yet this year, and now that I definitely have to check out Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, a movie that I heard a lot about and just didn't get around to watching that I know I need to watch Father, Soldier, Son, I don't think I had heard of yet, which is exciting because now it's on my radar. And The Boys in the Band is a movie that I didn't hear anything about at all, but I knew it existed. It was one of those Ryan Murphy projects, I think, that I know hit Netflix, but for whatever reason, despite its sort of pedigree, nobody really talked about it. So I'm glad to know that you liked it, and I'll have to check it out myself. All right, here is my 20 through 11. At number 20, I have The King of Staten Island, Judd Apatow and Pete Davidson's semi-autobiographical movie about Pete Davidson. It's definitely too long, but it has really great performances and a lot of laughs. Um, 19, I also had Palm Springs, the perfect quarantine movie, and I totally agree. Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti are perfectly cast and compulsively watchable. At 18, I had The Invisible Man, tense, thrilling, and timely. If you hadn't a uh, chance to see it, when it was in theaters, or now that it's on HBO Max, I believe, taking the original source material of The Invisible Man and morphing it, changing it into a 2020 edition, both in terms of the technology that allows for the man to be invisible, but also for its themes, touching on some really, really sensitive topics through a thriller movie. Number 17, I had Mank. Uh, old Hollywood porn for sure, but and uh, not Fincher's best, but it's still David Fincher. There's basically a floor of quality and not my favorite of his, but still a movie that I liked so much with a great Gary Oldman performance and Amanda Seyfried performance and really great performances across the board. And like I said, if you like old Hollywood, if that interests you, you're going to have a blast. Number 16, I also had The Trial of the Chicago 7. I would say Sorkin's not the best director, and he does play a little bit too fast and loose with history, but he's still a great writer, and again, it's a very game cast, having a lot of fun with some challenging material. Number 15, I also had The Vast Night, uh, the best Twilight Zone episode we never got. At 14, I had Onward. Pixar absolutely in its comfort zone, but Pixar in its comfort zone is still better than almost any other studio. A really fun family fantasy film. Number 13, I had I'm Your Woman. It's slick and stylish and a really cool perspective flipped take on the gangster film starring Rachel Brosnahan as the wife of a gangster who is forced to go on the run after her husband mysteriously does not come home after a job. Number 12, I had Borat's subsequent movie film. Very nice. Uh, Maria Bakalova for all the Oscars, all the awards. Honestly, one of the best performances of the year, simply for how she is able to match Sacha Baron Cohen in all of his Borat-y craziness. I actually had never seen the original, so I watched Borat on one day and a Borat subsequent movie film the next, and it was a great use of three and a half or four hours or whatever, whatever that is. 
And at number 11, I had Birds of Prey, a movie that made my top five of 2020 so far earlier this year. Some really, truly incredible action sequences. Margot Robbie leads a really, really great cast with fun and funny performances all around. And I really do predict that this is going to be one of my favorite DC movies for the foreseeable future. Just a blast. And I was expecting it to be mediocre. So I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to watching it again soon. All right. I watched Borat and I'm Your Woman because I knew they were on your list. King of Staten Island, I think, is the one that still eluded me. But I have to say, Maria Bakalova is incredible. The entire film, one of the cringiest things I've seen. It It is is. extraordinarily cringy. The humor is, um, yeah, it's not for everyone, probably. No, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But there, I, you know... The, mm, the I'm just let's just say that we have some eclectic taste here between the two of us that we do and so without further ado let's get deeper into those eclectic tastes I'm excited to go through our top 10s of 2020 before we dive deeper into the top 10 we shared some of our other favorites the honorable mentions if you will in the 11 through 20 spot but Christian, as you made your list, as you reflected on it, did you have any thoughts going into it? Some Maybe some movies you regretted not getting to watch beforehand, or were you surprised by the movies that appeared? Without spoiling it, of course, just any thoughts on your, your favorite movies of the year? There came a point where I realized there were five or six films that were crucial for me to have on my list. And when I realized that me watching 2020 movies, which I binged a ton of um, during the past three weeks that I was on vacation became more of a finding the last four or five films that I thought my list wouldn't be complete without rather than trying to find like as trying to watch as many 2020 movies as possible. When I got to that top 10, I stopped when I got to, I think that this is not only a great representation of what I like, but also what I think is great. I realized that whenever I watched another 2020 film, it was more like impress me rather than let me see what this film is. So um, each movie's one to ten have four and a half stars. Yes, four and a half stars out of five for me on Letterboxd. Or in life. In existence. (laughs) In life. Letterboxd be damned. A lot of 2020 movies I wanted to see that I wasn't ultimately able to see, but still was able to watch some good ones. And I agree with you. I really was focused on the mindset of what will I watch that I'm hoping I will actually like? What will I watch that I really think if it's as good as I hope it'll be, it'll be on that list. It's something that I would be excited to talk about after it is over. Not just can I binge as many 2020 movies as possible. So I can say honestly, there are two movies on this list that I have watched in the last two days. They are movies that I'm very excited to talk about, but there are also some on this list that have been on my list for a long time. And I'm excited to reflect on those as well. I also do notice a theme here on my list that I will dive in more or dive into more as we get closer to their position on this list. So without further ado, let us commence our top tens of 2020. Christian, are you ready? Yes. I'm I need a I need a set phasers to kill. <laughs> Well, Christian, as you set phasers to kill, I'm going to set time to go backwards because my number 10 of the year is Tenet. That was that a bad right. joke. I need that you to feel shame. I do feel shame. 
Tenet, if you somehow have not heard of it, let alone seen it, is Christopher Nolan's newest movie starring John David Washington and Robert Pattinson and Elizabeth Debicki. Following secret agents who manipulate time to hopefully prevent World War III or the world from being destroyed or, you know, those kinds of Hollywood-level circumstances. <laughs> Tenet is a movie that has been talked about ad nauseum because it was this big experiment regarding will people go back to movie theaters or not. And it grossed $362 million worldwide, which is a number that almost any filmmaker would kill for and yet probably left Christopher Nolan pissed off and sad because his movie cost an exorbitant amount of money and was marketed with even more money. But I still think it was a blast. I really dug just the stylishness of it all, the great costumes and suits and people going backwards in time and great stunts and even if it was almost incoherent at times i still felt that i tracked enough with the story that it didn't make me angry and i love christopher nolan i'm a sucker for him i'm a total film bro shout out to r slash film i guess but Tenet was a movie that i i know i liked more than you christian and as i reflected on the year it almost felt wrong to know that i liked it and would leave it off my top 10 somehow plus it's a movie that i'm looking forward to going back and watching again so those initial concerns I had with it about maybe not wanting to ever watch it again have passed. So Tenet, still on my list at number 10. Tenet's still not on my list. But, I mean, it is a good time. I enjoyed myself at the theater. And there came a point where the first time I didn't really enjoy it that much. And that was because I thought either I'm stupid or... Does everyone else know what's going on? And I don't because I left the, the theater thinking what, what just happened. But I, I think it suffers from over explaining and actually not being able to make me follow along with all the plot points. That being said, if you just ignore that and uh, I just resigned. All right. Tenet's just not a movie that will let me understand what's going on. It's a better time. Yeah, I mean, I am... I got my second major in college in film studies, and so I am all for paying attention to the film and trying to understand things. But sometimes movies are better when you turn your brain off. I mean, have you seen half of Nicolas Cage's filmography? So in light of that idea, if you're willing to just submit to what Christopher Nolan is doing, there's that famous quote from Tenet about not trying to understand it, but trying to feel it that many have said is his philosophy behind watching that movie then if you're willing to just feel it, Tenet is a really good time. And I think it's a movie that will last as people continue to watch Christopher Nolan movies and consider his career. I think it's a movie that will be remembered as significant for this year, especially, but also just as a good movie and an enjoyable one from a great American blockbuster filmmaker. So that is Tenet. Christian, we now switch gears to your number 10. My number 10 is Bakurao. It is a Brazilian film directed by Clever Mendonca Filo and Juliano Dornels and written by that duo as well. The plot is kind of interesting. It's, it's without trying to spoil that much, a woman returns to her hometown in Brazil and uh, because the matriarch of the town died. And after the matriarch dies, they start discovering that the town has disappeared from virtually all maps in the area. It's as though the town does not exist. 
there's an exploration as to why no one can find this town anymore that reveals class issues, exploitation, and uh, racial dynamics in a way that you would not be able to imagine. There's also, this is the, the very much the clincher. It's a mystery trying to solve everything for about half of the movie. At that halfway point, all of your questions get answered. Kind of. And then it switches into you rooting and cheering as a mass parade of action and the greatest, greatest booby traps ever come forth. Well, now that you've mentioned the booby traps, I'm even more disappointed I haven't seen this movie. <laughs> uh, looking at your list, if it weren't for one that will come up later, this is the one I'm most disappointed that I didn't see. Um, I heard a lot of good things about Baccarat, and your praise only made me more interested, so now I gotta watch it. I think it's still streaming on Canopy. I think you can still watch it on Canopy. A big shout out to the good people at Canopy and all of those wonderful librarians who provide us access to it. I'll have to check that out for sure. Now with this, let's move on to your next pick. Your number nine film, Scott. Oh, you're darn right. We're moving on to my number nine movie. (laughs) Speaking of movies that Christian and I disagreed about, but one that he disagreed with me perhaps more on my number nine is Emma Autumn DeWilde's debut film adapting the Jane Austen novel starring Anya Taylor-Joy in the titular role. Emma is a movie that also appeared on my top five of 2020 so far when we did that episode earlier and we disagreed about it to say the least Christian. I don't like it. (laughs) Looking at our lists of the movies that you have seen on mine that didn't make yours, is this the only one you straight up didn't like? I mean, Mank I wasn't the biggest fan of, but this is the one where if someone says, is it worth my time to watch Emma, I would say no. So mean, because I would say resoundingly yes. Again, it's so Emma... boring. I'm I'm not here for rich people trying to set each other up on dates while wearing period-appropriate clothing. If it's any consolation to those of you listening at home, yes, I am watching Bridgerton on Netflix with my wife. And no, Christian is not watching Bridgerton, <laughs> which is basically just a sister series to Emma. <laughs> it's rich English people falling in love and not falling in love but emma to me despite your distaste for it is up my alley and that i am a white boy through and through who loves him a good period costume drama especially when that's not a cat maybe maybe my years living here and not in peru have changed me i don't think that's a white boy characteristic well it's not normally a white boy characteristic putting christopher nolan on my list at number 10 is more of a white boy characteristic than putting a lavish costume drama on my list but i have a very white boy movie coming up and i'm looking forward to discussing it but i know we've talked a lot about how christian dislikes it but some things that i loved about emma that are still true are it's colors and just the way it looks it looks like a cupcake on screen it's a delight to watch there's a lot of laughs at least for me i had some treasured moments of laughing with people in a movie theater 
and this is the last movie that I saw in a movie theater until I saw Tenet at the drive-in. So I also love Emma for that, I do have to say. And Anya Taylor-Joy in the lead role is just magnetic and so easy to watch. And she weirdly became one of the major stars of this year. She was the central role in The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which is unequivocally one of the most important pieces of pop culture to come out this year, just in terms of numbers of people watching it and cultural influence, I suppose. And I, gosh, I hope she is a star for the rest of her life because she is so good and has jumped between different genres and different types of roles. Movies like Split and The Maligned New Mutants, very different from movies like Emma and series like The Queen's Gambit. So if you liked Anya Taylor-Joy in The Queen's Gambit and you didn't check out Emma, I really would encourage you to watch it, even though Christian did not like it, which made me sad. I still have a lot of affection for Emma, and it is my number nine of the year. I think she was very strong, and I think that the production design and the costumes were stellar. You just didn't like the story and not your thing. Not at all. I, I think I stopped the story and called my friend Weston in the middle. <laughs> my gosh yeah before we fight more christian it's time to move on to a movie that i believe appeared on your list at number nine but also appeared on my list at number eight it did and that is boy state the 2020 documentary we also discussed in our top five of 2020 directed and produced by jesse moss and amanda McBain. it is the tale of the texas boy state covering it well boys making in high school all making a government from the ground up forming senators voting on a governor making legislation forming parties and how that parallels even the elections and uh, the view of candidacy that we see now the fact that boys state came out this year will always blow my mind it's one of those perfect confluences of real life current events and movies documentaries coming out and again it remained on my list i think all three of these movies were on my top five of 2020 list and they remained on my top 10 as i built this list because as i mentioned i mostly liked tenet and emma but boy state i feel like it's a movie that people are going to look back on as one of again the most important and emblematic movies of 2020 the fact that it's so good is almost, I mean, superfluous next to it. it. It's just so timely, so unbelievably timely. And the real life events captured are so matched to our real life events here in the United States. So I am, yeah, Boy State is really good if you haven't seen it yet. The, the thing about Boy State that I think is what makes it so captivating for me is that the entire film is trying to figure out who wins the governor election. Which one of the different boys here will have run such a successful campaign that others will vote for them? And so we're barreling towards that election result. I think that this separates it, even from the other two documentaries that I have on my 11 through 20, with that end goal in mind, I was excited to see what was captured on film. And that's not always something I can say about a film, even a narrative film. And I think that's something that distinguishes this from other things. Boys State, one of the Apple TV Plus movies on this list, but perhaps not the last Apple TV Plus movie on this list. 
Christian, why don't you go ahead and share your next movie? So my next movie uh, at number seven for me, if I am skipping number eight for now, is On the Rocks. On the Rocks, written and directed by Sofia Coppola, starring Bill Murray and Rashida Jones. Bill Murray is her father, and uh, she thinks her husband is cheating on her. And so she kind of goes on a weird, almost like buddy duo quest to find out if her husband's cheating on her or not. And the strength of this film lies in several different areas. It lies in the tone. This this beautiful, uh, lacking use of dialogue. And when I say lacking, I mean that Sofia Coppola is never one to overwrite. She puts in exactly what characters need to say. And also in the subdued nature of the performers so that it's nice it's quaint this is my period drama what you have on your list this is mine i want to see people who enjoy being with each other and again it's kind of uplifting this father-daughter relationship is uplifting that is that's what i loved i could hang out with these people i cared about them and i wanted to know i wanted her to be okay oh so sweet i uh i'm also a fan of on the rocks and that it's a movie i like i though agree with some of the criticism lobbed at it that it just feels minor in that sofia coppola is a director who often has a lot of ambition even if her movies are quiet she still has a lot of ambitious ideas to tackle and cover and on the rocks just felt like a much smaller movie in terms of scope and ambition that she normally produces. I'm going to counter that for a second, though. Do it. I think, though, that because her films are subdued, the tone of this film, the I don't think it was less ambitious, but the minor, quote-unquote, role of it fit the way that she directs, which is why I think it appealed to me. And I'm not saying this to throw shade at Marie Antoinette. But that's why I think Marie Antoinette didn't work for me as well because it felt so grand. But when she's a director who focuses on kind of the minimal, it didn't make sense to me. What we can agree on is that Bill Murray is great. He freaking fantastic might be in line for some awards or recognition in the future. I know some people are pulling for him. He's had a lot of great collaborations with Sofia Coppola over the years. And here he's playing a particularly unlikable character in real life, the kind of guy who is in his 60s or 70s, but is still hitting on waitresses and talking his way out of tickets from the police. But when it's Bill Murray, you can't help but like him. (laughs) And he's totally game for a performance that both utilizes his charm and charisma, but also undercuts it in intriguing ways. So if you're a big Bill Murray fan, regardless of how you feel about Sofia Coppola, I would still encourage you to check out On the Rocks. All right, now we're kind of move on to your number six. We are moving on to my number six, and this is a strange uh, situation for me to share here. So this is a movie that is the only movie I have logged on Letterboxd with a five-star rating thus far from 2020, and yet it is situated at number six. So let me explain why. This movie is Hamilton. The Lin-Manuel Miranda smash hit Broadway musical filmed and recorded 
and plopped on Disney Plus at the, I wouldn't say height of the pandemic because it's achieved many heights over the past nine months or what have you, but at a pivotal moment for our country as people were needing to spend more inside time over the summer and needed more things to watch because they couldn't go to the movie theater. So Disney Plus had Hamilton and the world rejoiced. If you have not (laughs) seen or encountered Hamilton at this point, I honestly applaud you. That's simply incredible. I know some people have chosen to avoid it, and those party poopers are entitled to be that obnoxious. But I don't say obnoxious in that if you don't like Hamilton, you're not cool. I'm just saying if you've somehow avoided engaging with Hamilton at all, come on, get with the party. But I struggled with what to do with Hamilton on my list because it's it wasn't the most ambitious imagining of the stage show. It was captured over multiple performances with some... Other close-up shots filled in during rehearsals without a crowd. And so I wondered if it counted, or I guess what it counted as. Was it a movie? Was it a documentary? Was it a TV special? How how did we, f- I mean, documentaries are movies. I don't know what I'm saying. But how do we, you know, what do we consider Hamilton to be? And was I it said a movie myself, or was it a video? Yeah, I guess. That's a good way of putting it. Was it just a video? And... A movie that I also regretted not catching up with before this show and one that I will need to see in the near future is David Byrne's American Utopia, which is another Byrne's American Utopia Broadway musical captured for a streaming service, this time being HBO Max. And Spike Lee actually directed it. And I've seen that pop up on a lot of year end lists from critics and Hamilton pop up on none because I think Spike Lee brought more of his sensibilities and his directorial eye to the capturing of American Utopia and David Byrne is also a beloved figure in the film community because of Stop Making Sense and other projects that he's worked on over the years. And so I said to myself, you know, if American Utopia is allowed on these year-end lists, then Hamilton should be as well. And it's my favorite thing that I got to watch in 2020, even if it's not the most iconic 2020 movie. And so I settled for putting it at number six on my list. And Christian, you mentioned you had not even seen Hamilton yet but you know what are your thoughts on the Hamilton drama I have had the pleasure the honor of seeing Hamilton in person which not many people can say Uh, I one of my plans for my birthday this year it comes up in April is that Hamilton was supposed to open up in LA at that time will that happen I I if that happens I will pay you a dollar because there's no way (laughs) There's no way that, that 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 occurs. That being said, it's not that I avoided it. It's more so that I, I, because I had seen it live, there were other things that captured my attention that I thought um, I, I should seek out. I think Hamilton is worth all of the hype, and I think it's fantastic. This is where my hot take comes in. It's not my favorite of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musicals. That distinction goes to In the Heights, which is having its own film premiere on hbo max this year (laughs) but i will say i think that the music hamilton is one of those few instances where i think innovation to me was key in breaking barriers for what casting can be what representation can be what a good story can be and the beauty of meshing hip-hop with broadway musicals Loved it. Absolutely loved it. I had also gotten to see Hamilton on stage. I saw it. It 
at a Playhouse Square in Cleveland, Ohio. Shout out to the great city of Cleveland for the touring production there. And I mean, I am still a huge Hamilton fan. I don't listen to it maniacally like I used to when it was still hot, fresh, and exciting. But one thing that's also been fun is to engage with the detractors of Hamilton, people who hate Hamilton, because there are certainly people who don't like it because it's popular and they are obliged by their sensibilities to be obnoxious and hate things that are popular. But there are also some genuinely fascinating takes and criticism around Hamilton and why it should be disliked, particularly in terms of Lin-Manuel Miranda's own personal politics and how we represent our founding fathers, no matter who is playing them. And so Hamilton is still a fascinating cultural object. And the fact that I got to watch the original cast was exciting. But the fact that I also got to re-engage with the conversation around it was super interesting to me and invigorating during a very low period of the pandemic. So Hamilton is on my list at number six. And now, Christian, we turn to you for your number six. My number six is an animated film. It is Weathering With You. It is a Japanese animated film written and directed by Makoto Shinkai, who has the distinction, I think, of having made the highest grossing anime in Japan of all time with this previous feature film, Your Name. Weathering With You is a romantic fantasy about a runaway boy who befriends, his name is Hodaka, and he befriends this girl named Hina who has the ability to pray to make it stop raining. Japan has been experiencing rains for months on end. They'd never seen anything like it. And she is known as a sunshine girl, a weather girl, who can stop it for a little bit of time so that people can play sports events or hang out with each other or even sell stuff at market. And so they sell this ability for money. They start, well not start, it's a romance between the two of them that delves into what is the cost of romance and should you choose the world <laughs> or should you choose the person you're with? Is it fair to put the entire weight of the world on someone's shoulders? And I think that that is one of those, one of the most beautiful things to tackle. It was one of my favorite endings of the entire year, especially as I, I don't know. I don't think I see that many people taking risks in storytelling. There's a selfish nature to this romance. And I think that's so human. And, I mean, separately, this is one of the most beautifully animated things of ever. Oh, my goodness. The way that they capture clouds, sun, just the falling rain, Japan, it's vivid. It's hand-drawn. It points you to the niceness of everyday life. So that is weathering with you at my number six. I'm very glad you had so much to say on it because it's another movie that I did not have a chance to see this year. And after Your Name was a smash hit and I still didn't see it, then Weathering a Few came out and it made your top 10 of the year. I will definitely have to start seeking out Makata Shinkai's work. I would love to check these out. And especially with our recent Studio Ghibli marathon, 
I am realizing just how much I need to get more familiar with, with Japanese film in general, but Japanese animated film especially. So it's on my list, Christian. Hope I can do you right. Next up, Christian, we are sticking with your list, and we're jumping up to number five. So what is your number five movie of the year? I have to say, once again, a movie I have not yet seen. So sorry, folks. Hope you like Christian monologues here. Uh, number five is Sputnik, which is a, okay, it is a Russian film. It is directed by Igor Abramenko, and it was written by Oleg Malevichko and Andrei Zolotarev. I apologize if any of those names are not sounding great right now. It is a creature flick. It is a science fiction horror flick directly inspired by Alien because it deals with a man from outer space who comes, well, not from outer space, who, an astronaut who, when he crash lands on Earth, the Soviet Union discovers that he has an alien parasite living inside of him. They recruit a woman to try and take that alien parasite out. The thing is, we don't know why they want to take that alien parasite out. It's, it's astounding. It's astounding. It's, it's not, I I mean, I guess it qualifies as horror, but it's more an exploration of life. It's a view of romance. It's a, a view of selfishness and of taking advantage of others. There's so many things that are up with this film It that it, it just uses its science fiction and its horror elements. By the way, the creature scares you the frick out. You think maybe a parasite living inside of a human being wouldn't be that scary. Well, I guess then you have never seen Alien. And I guess also... <laughs> This I think that the visual effects are used both minimally and to their fullest extent. It's very much a film that thrives in darkness, in like shadows, I mean, because that's where they can we can we can be terrified. But the thing is, who should we be afraid of? And that is Sputnik at my number five. Again, another glowing recommendation from you that has put a movie on my watch list, one that I have not yet seen. I had actually never even heard of this movie before you threw it out as something that I should consider watching. I'm glad that you loved it so much because now I know I have to see it. You and someone else I follow on Letterboxd have given it a sterling four and a half star rating. So it's on there. And I'm glad to know that at least I would find something that is like me. We thrive in the darkness and in shadows. It's on Hulu. It's on Hulu for because I feel like most people have not heard of Sputnik. I really threw out the idea that I thrive in the darkness and you just did nothing with it. Wow. <laughs> I find that it's best when I don't indulge you. <laughs> oh, Christian. It's true. All right. We're jumping around on our lists some more. And to your number keeping four. track at home. Yes. To my number four. We've skipped my number seven. And Christian's number eight, they're movies that will come up later. So we now jump to my number four. My number four and my number five, actually, how about that? My number four movie of the year is a movie that I watched last night, and immediately I knew it had to be on this list. It was one of the most powerful things I saw all year. It is Garrett Bradley's Time. Time is a documentary that follows the life of Sybil Richardson, a.k.a. Fox Rich, who is an activist, a speaker, a wife and mother who was imprisoned 
for a crime she committed with her husband. But for that same crime, her husband is serving a 60-year sentence. Garrett Bradley follows um, Sybil Richardson, who also goes to Fox Rich. So she follows Fox on this journey to fight for her husband's release from an unjust punishment, while also dealing with raising her sons and raising awareness in the community at large. In a year where we were very focused on the criminal justice system in this country and on the experience of black Americans at the hands of police and at the hands of uh, jails and prisons, time just feels like an extremely relevant and timely document. The Richardson family, especially Fox Rich, uh, she gives us just unbelievable access into her life in a way that moved me, especially during some sequences of this film. It features such moments as her son's white coat ceremony at dentistry school, her uh, birthday parties with her children over the years, calling clerks of judges and law offices asking for updates on her husband's case. And again, the access is just unbelievable that one woman would open herself up uh, so much. The film is a balance of these present day sequences of Fox and her sons, but also balanced with home videos that she's captured over the years that I think the story goes that Garrett Bradley had set out to make this documentary. There'll be a short of Fox and her experiences, but ultimately became a feature after incorporating these home videos that Fox had shot over the years. And it expands the scope of the movie. Obviously, it's called Time for a reason. It's focused on time and what the criminal justice system, when used unjustly, can do to the time of the people affected and to the time of those who are just living life. And so I have more to say, Christian, but I know this is a movie you've seen as well and would love to hear some of your thoughts. I think that the editing in this film is truly gorgeous and that the black and white imagery is fantastic. I am a big fan of this film. I think that it's just kind of heartbreaking and it's so real and it's so raw because this wasn't just a documentaries are very much a director's game. The director basically controls all of it, but the star Fox, she contributed all of these hours of home tape. I think that she had, had she not contributed and I'm not just talking about her story, which is truly emotional and truly relevant and truly makes you think, but her own footage to use, it would not be as strong as it is. I do agree. By the end of this movie, I was unbelievably impressed with Fox Rich. She's just an amazing human being. I want to be like Fox Rich when I grow up. I mean, she is... Truly unbelievable. Her home videos over the year, like you say, add so much to this movie, not only because you get a better sense of who she is, a better sense of how she's grown as a person, a better sense of her family, but you also get these powerful moments of editing, like you said, where she and uh, Garrett Bradley will show a clip of one of her sons as a little boy running around doing something cute and then cut to the present day where you realize how much this person aged how this boy became a man and how all the while they're emphasizing through this film her husband was not there and she was forced to do this on her own 
just a powerful, powerful movie. I'm so glad that I decided to watch it before this episode so that I can talk about it on this show. It's also only 81 minutes long with credits. It is compact and concise in a way where I feel that they could have added probably 20 or 30 minutes more to this. And yet they kept it a powerful and brief punch. It's so, so good. And I would strongly recommend that you check it out if you have not yet seen it. Christian, any other, any other thoughts on time? It makes an interesting pairing with the next movie we're going to discuss. <laughs> Indeed it does, Christian. We are back onto your list and ready for you to take it away. My number four film of the year is a film that we both were able to see together in person before COVID ex- was a thing. Remember January of 2020, Christian? Remember I don't. a year ago? What a th- I don't. <laughs> it's all ancient history. I, I remember that the guy I was staying with ended up being my roommate, and I'm still living with that decision. Quite literally, living with that decision. Anyway, you're, you're number four. That was bad. <laughs> my number four is Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman. This action comedy with Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, Henry Golding, Michelle Dockery, Colin Farrell, Hugh Grant. It, oh, it, the cast is phenomenal. I mean, we've talked about this. Uh, it was my number two film at, at, uh, at the Top 5 Award Show. It had to stay in my top five. It's about Matthew McConaughey's character, Michael Mickey Pearson, who is selling his cannabis empire after years of being in the game because he doesn't want to be in the game anymore. But basically, a lot of people want that cannabis empire. And so everyone, like rival gangs, people he knows, um, everyone is going on it. It's non-linear storytelling. Uh, there's like a twist-ish ending where you realize that some things are other things. And it's, okay, okay. This movie is offensive. <laughs> this movie is offensive. It's got questionable morals. This is what I say to that. This movie is entertaining. Entertaining is not everything, but I will say this movie is entertaining. Separately, this movie is not about the best human beings in the world. They're about human beings who are running an illegal drug empire. These were your main complaints about the film. This is also a non-linear story-wise thing that is brought together at the end in a strong form. I think that if you go to see it, not just, and I, I, I will say a strong film, a film that has tight writing and phenomenal acting performances, but also a film that weaves in and out of its story seamlessly. I think The Gentleman is the way to go. My thoughts on The Gentleman remain in that I think that the racist humor used does not work and is maybe more reflective of Guy Ritchie than just the gangster characters. I, I also I, think I, this isn't this isn't like a an excuse for The Gentleman, but I do think that this is a way in which this film needs to be watched. When someone watches a film, for example, a Quentin Tarantino film or a problematic film by Wes Anderson or a problematic film. I mean, those are my issues with Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. Those are Spike Lee's issues with Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown and Django Unchained. I think that you context is key. I don't think that this film is out there to offend. I respect if you do and if that detracts. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's out there to offend. I think it's out there to entertain. To entertain it does. I agree with you. It's an entertaining movie. And honestly, when the quarantine lifts and we rejoice in the streets, if you were to come up to me and give me a hug for the first time in a long time and say, Scott, can we watch The Gentleman? I would say yes. And I would enjoy watching the movie with you <laughs> once again. I, you know, my problems with the comedy still stands and I haven't seen it since. And so I can't speak more directly, but I also like, there are other parts of the movie that I didn't like. I really thought Matthew McConaughey was actually kind of miscast in the lead role. Oh, you suck. It's not a bad performance, but there are parts where he's just kind of bland when I think somebody else could have brought a little more gravitas to what he's trying to do. But again, just a few big problems in addition or big problems for a movie that I otherwise really liked. So do with that what you will. That was less fighting than I thought we were going to go into. (laughs) If we had more time, Christian, we could fight forever. But alas, (laughs) this episode cannot be very long. All right. Let's go into your number three, Scott. My number three movie is a movie that I watched two days ago. So again, another one that I am very grateful that I fit in. It is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Directed by George C. Wolfe, who has primarily worked on the stage up to this point in his career, starring Viola Davis as Ma Rainey and Chadwick Boseman, famously his final role before his untimely and still heartbreaking death earlier this year. It follows a recording session adapted from the play uh, by August Wilson, a recording session for Ma Rainey and her band as they deal with what it means to be black entertainers in a white world. The film takes place in the 1930s. And as they also deal with their various places in of influence and respect in the world, Ma dealing with her stature as one of the most important entertainers of the time, who is, of course, still mistreated for being a black woman. Her band dealing with their various spots. One of them wants to strike out on his own. The rest of them are content with where they are. And it is a fascinating movie i think it's an absolute triumph in terms of a stage adaptation it's honestly just a movie that is really pretty and really satisfying to look at i thought in addition to some you know really nice shots if you will it just has a good look to it in terms of costumes and color and production design and movements of the camera that enliven very stagey settings it's just a great movie to look at And the performances in this movie are perhaps some of the best of the year, bar none. Viola Davis is wonderful as Ma Rainey. It's a juicy part. Ma has a very big personality, but also is walking this line between having serious influence and also having none. Uh, Having influence in her world, but fighting for it in a world that would reject her uh, as a black woman and her band's performances. Chadwick leading the way, he is getting a lot of the acclaim out of this movie, partially due to his death, but also because he is just brilliant in this movie. He is vivacious and alive in a way that I, it just, it it breaks my heart. Um, It's a different performance based on some of the roles he's played, often playing these sort of iconic characters like Black Panther uh, and uh, Levy is the name of his character here. Is just so different. Um, it really, he really had so much left in him, and I'm heartbroken that he did not get to give us all of the performances that I wish we could have had. But uh, with him in the band, uh, Glenn Turman as Toledo, the pianist, Coleman Domingo as Cutler, um, the trombone player, 
And Michael Potts says, slow drag the double bass player, form a really great ensemble, in addition to a few others in supporting roles. So, uh, again, the performances are unbelievable. The look is wonderful. And Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, again, very tight. Uh, just over 90 minutes um, with, you know, with credits. So, uh, another concise and powerful movie. One of my favorites of the year. So, the, the only reason this didn't make my list just because i don't think the transition from stage to screen was that effective that being said i agree with you the performances here are some of the best we've seen viola davis's character i think viola davis is one of the strongest actresses just working yes i i'm before it anyone says anything chadwick boseman phenomenal especially as you said in just a role we haven't been able to see him play before I just love Viola Davis. I think that her takes and it's her line delivery, especially when she talks about why she's being difficult on stage. And she's like, because they don't care about me. And when they get me, they only want my voice. They don't care about me. How she delivers that and how that makes the entire film kind of click into place. Oh, it takes your breath away. It really does. So, yes, absolutely go and watch this film if you have not yet. Unfortunately, I do have to correct myself. It's set in 1927, not the 30s. Spoken correctly. <laughs> There's my fact check on myself. You know what? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> How dare you? Speaking of Chadwick Boseman, we now move on to a movie that is on both of our lists. Um, Christian, it is on your list at number three, and it is on my list at number seven. Why don't you take it away? This was our shared number one for the top five of 2020 episode, and it is The Five Bloods, a film directed by Spike Lee, written by him, Danny Bilson, Paul DeMeo, and Kelvin Wilmot. I mean, I think we've said, we reviewed this also on the show. I'm trying to think of what new things we could say for those of you who weren't able to catch that episode. It's about uh, an aging group of Vietnam War veterans who return to Vietnam to search for the remains of their squad leader. They were the five bloods and now there are four of them, but they also have another reason for being back there. And that's to search for buried treasure. And me saying that oversimplifies it a ton, but it also follows the aging of these characters, the political descent among them the family dynamics they were caught into it is a sloppy film in that it is hectic there's so much going on plot after plot after plot it features delroy lindo's performance which i mean i i think still remains as my favorite lead male performance of the entire year especially as so much of the film kind of opens up to just let him do whatever he wants to do and it's a film that is two uh, two and a half hours but doesn't feel like that because it knows how to bring you from beginning to end not seamlessly i don't think you can really call too many spike lee movies seamless but in its rough edges allows you to see why those edges are rough in the first place you know you talked about how it's not seamless and it's a little sloppy and i don't even know if i would call it sloppy i would just say it's ridiculously ambitious which is a quality of Spikes that he's had his entire career. You can see it in his earliest movies, and you can still see it now. 
He is not one to settle for a small swing. He hits for a home run every time, and sometimes he strikes out. Sometimes he crushes the ball out of the park, and sometimes he swings for a home run and still gets a double. And for me, that's how I felt about Divide Bloods, in that there are parts of it that drag on for a little too long or don't work as effectively as others, but the parts of this movie that work are just brilliant. And like you said, Delroy Lindo's lead performance is unbelievably good. And if it weren't for another performance that we'll talk about later on this list, it might still be my clear-cut number one choice for a Best Actor award for this year. Oh, if it's the person whom I think you're going to say, I'm really excited. It is. And Chadwick Boseman, again, appearing in this movie, in a way, is the performer of the year. Not only for his place in the news, but also for the two roles that we're talking about uh, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, his final performance, and in Five Bloods as Storm and Norman, this angel, this icon, this leader lost before his time. It's a role that I have not watched since his passing. I saw the movie before, but I'm sure that when I see him again, uh, when I rewatch this movie, inevitably, it's it's going to make me cry. And so, yeah, we don't need to talk too much more about Five Bloods because we already went in great detail about it on an episode of the show and then later on our top five of 2020 so far but a great movie and one of the most important again of 2020 so with that let's move on to another shared pick it is my number eight of the year but it's your number two yes yes it is it's a little movie i like to call soul and actually everybody else calls it that it is pete doctor's latest release recently dropped on Disney Plus for free, after many people suspecting it uh, might be delayed or dropped on to Disney Plus for a fee, like Mulan was. It follows Joe Gardner, who is a part-time band teacher at a middle school who has never given up on his dream of making it as a jazz musician. And right when he gets a shot, he falls down a manhole and awakes in the great beyond, which is the Pixar way of calling the afterlife. And Joe's soul tries to reconcile with this by making its way back into the world and hopefully trying to still get that shot as a member of a jazz band. I was really anticipating soul because I love Pixar and Pete Doctor has made some amazing movies over his career. I also like jazz music and that's fun. But it's a movie that for most of its runtime was something I was totally tracking with, but didn't blow me away. And near the end, it coheres with a montage, I guess I can call it, that moved me to tears. And as you see Pete Doctor's points that he's trying to get across here coming together in terms of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive, what it means to have a spark in life, have something you're pursuing and passionate about. As it all comes together, I started crying. And I often go into movies with a desire to cry. You cry a lot. I know, it's because I never used to. But obviously, you don't watch things like John Wick and hope to cry. You don't watch Tenet and hope to cry. But for things like Soul, I was hoping to be moved. And obviously... I was. And in addition to the themes that I think come together really nicely, you also have great vocal performances by Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey. All in all, just another really good time at the movies from Pixar. So my number two of the year and your number eight is Soul. 
I think that honestly you hit all the points I wanted to make. The only thing I'll add is the world, the fantasy world that they bring up. For example, you always need a reason to make a fantasy, not a fantasy movie. You always need a reason to make an animated film, a film that can play on a genre. Their presentation of the great beyond and the great before of the Terry and the Jerry's of, oh bro, I love Terry. The kind of like the black holes that they put in and how it all kind of melded with this existential nature contemplation of life. They took what it meant to have an animated movie and they ran with it. Pete Doctor, of course, I mean, known for Inside Out, but also, I mean, he, he's been with Pixar since, I think, basically the very beginning. He is the probably the second or third highest ranked person in Pixar. Let's just say that I'm kind of happy he's in charge. He is legitimately one of the best American filmmakers working, which maybe that's a hot take, but he's an unbelievable director, has made some amazing amazing movies over his career also want to shout out kemp powers who co-directed this movie yes. with pete doctor and Absolutely. wrote it with pete doctor and mike jones another person to watch his play one night in miami it was adapted by uh, himself and regina king and is coming out in 2021 although it is also technically a 2020 release because of when it you know showed at festivals another big important movie so to say coming out soon hopefully it's a success as soul is and Kemp powers can also continue to have a role in Hollywood because if one in Miami is as good as soul is, then he uh, honestly deserves quite a bit more work. Christian, we went to my number two for soul. And now we go to your number two. Unless the last movie we'll talk about that I haven't seen and you invited me to watch it with you and I couldn't make it. And I was so very sad, Ugh, but Christian do tell what's your number two. My number two film of the year is a film that had a limited release on a virtual cinema and it will not come out in wide release until February. And I kind of debated whether or not I should put it on here. I don't want to put movies on here that you need to like wait to go out and see. But Minari, written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, is is one of the greatest things I've seen. It, it, it tells a Korean-American family who moves from California to Arkansas because the father, played by Stephen Yun, wants to own a farm. He wants to own a farm and sell well, and cultivate Korean vegetables to local Korean stores because that is his American dream, to be able to make money cultivating that. And it focuses kind of on his dream and what strain that puts on his marriage, but also on the family because it's him, his wife, Monica, played by Hanye Ri. There's uh, children, David, Alan Kim, well, Alan Kim plays David, and Anne played by Noel Kate Cho. And also the grandma, uh, Monica's mom, who moves in with them, Soon Ja, played by Yu Yung Jung. This is one of, the, this is... This is the greatest family picture of the of the entire year. And, and 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 that's not a hot take because it's been crushing it ever since it premiered at Sundance. I'm trying to think of why I love this film and I think it's because I went into this film wanting to turn it off because I had other things to do and I couldn't. I was like if this film within the first 20 minutes gives me any reason to not watch it, 
I will turn it off. And it gave me every reason to keep watching. To keep seeing Steven Yun try and make his marriage work and try to make this American dream in a way that many of us don't realize or understand. It came from the children of this struggling immigrant family trying to see what they could do or how they fit into this puzzle. It has one of the best church scenes and kind of like church Christian values of what does it mean to have religion for an immigrant. And also, there's some racist white people at this white church kind of dug it because they didn't know they were racist and i think that's one of the funniest forms of racism on screen it comes out in wide release in on february 12th i don't know what that means i don't know if that means that it'll come out again on theaters and in some kind of uh paid video on demand service it it, it has a hundred percent rotten tomatoes if you care about rotten tomatoes just go watch it I just wish so dearly that I had been able to see this movie. I'm incredibly excited about it. I've heard only good things. I can't wait. And I'm glad that it made your list this highly because it only makes me want to see it more. Moving on, we only have two movies left to discuss here. My number one and your number one. So we'll start with mine because it was also your number 11. And that movie is Mangrove, directed by Steve McQueen. The first movie in his Small Axe anthology that hit Amazon Prime earlier this year. Mangrove follows the story of the Mangrove Restaurant, which is uh, in England, in London, I should say, West London, a restaurant that was a gathering place for the Caribbean community, uh, Caribbean immigrants, that is, in London and a place that was the frequent target of racist policing from the London police. The policing and ultimate protests against said policing culminated in some arrests and a trial, which become the subject of the second half of the movie. Mangrove was one of the few films that just blew me away this year. It knocked me off my feet, although I was sitting in bed while watching it, because of course it came out on Amazon Prime and I was watching it on my computer. But we talked about the trial of the Chicago 7 on the show, and it appeared on both of our 11 through 20. It's a movie that almost controversially we both liked quite a bit. I know a lot of critics were highly critical of it or disappointed by it, but the way that I described Mangrove to you at least my initial take, was that it is the better version of the trial of the Chicago 7, capturing a real-life trial with a highly political form of filmmaking that pulls no punches and blew me away. And I think one of the things that it does better than the trial of the Chicago 7 is that it spends its whole first hour focusing on the people who are then the defendants and the trial of the Chicago seven gets to the proceedings a lot faster, but we learn so much about Frank Critchlow who owns the mangrove restaurant. We learn so much about Darkus Howe, who is an activist that leads the way in terms of the black liberation movement in London at the time. Um, Althea Jones Laquant, who uh, played by Letitia Wright, who some people will recognize from black Panther. Uh, again, another leader for the movement there for the uh, black Panther party actually in London at the time. It spends so much time with these characters that by the time that they are in court, we are so with them, so behind them, so for them. 
and so understanding of the troubles they're facing that the trial feels so much heavier and the result of that trial hits you like a train uh, it's a very very powerful ending and so i have not yet seen the other films in the small axe anthology and it's a project near the top of my list mangrove was my favorite movie of the year thus far it's unbelievably good and i would encourage you if you have not yet watched it to do so i have seen mangrove i have seen several of the small x films i have i've not finished it yet i I think it's the best one out of all of them although other critics would disagree with me and say that it's the next film lover's rock the thing about mangrove and you and, and, and you're completely right it's the better trial but it's 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 not I don't I don't want to spend time just comparing it and saying it's better than Trial of the Chicago 7. That's that's not at all what this is. So Letitia Wright said that McQueen told her that he wanted to tell this story because, and I quote, the window for our elder stories to be told is closing. We can't allow them to pass away and become our ancestors without them seeing themselves, their culture, and everything they've contributed to the country represented on screen. You can tell that there is a frustration in this movie. There is a frustration that this movie had to be made in the first place. Because you shouldn't... You These aren't the stories that we want to tell. And yet these are the stories that have to be told. Because they happened. Because the mangrove was real. And because this man fought year after year and was charged so many times. That they finally gave him money, gave him settlement, because they were like, we recognize we were wrong, and people still aren't understanding the lesson to be told that elders were able to get years ago for people who are now. It's a phenomenal story. Another critic who's a favorite of ours, Sean Fennessy, said, I would follow Steve McQueen into the ocean. You know, that's not a bad way to go out. Ah, yes. So, my favorite film of the year, Mangrove. Christian, it's time to discuss your favorite film of the year and my number five. We're finally circling back to that. But more importantly, it's your favorite. Go ahead and introduce it. It's out of metal! It's out of metal. It's directed by Darius Martyr. It's co-written by him and Abraham Martyr. It stars Reza Med and Olivia Cook and Paul Racy. It's about a drummer at a heavy metal band who loses his hearing. Oh my goodness. This film is one of the most badass things I've seen the entire... It is the most badass thing I've seen the entire year. And I love it. I love it. Reza Med, phenomenal. There's this time in this film where you understand that the reason... Uh, Riza Med's character, Ruben, was addicted to heroin before he got into a relationship with his girlfriend and before he started drumming in this heavy metal band. It draws a distinct parallel between his addiction to heroin and his addiction to getting his hearing back once it starts to leave. That is one of the most gorgeous things. This view of what it is that we give value to and why we give value to those things what is it that we can't imagine our humanity without but we can it's not crucial for us and i'm not going to get into a debate as to why hearing is or is not crucial but it's basically are we willing to move on instead of wasting away or do we just find new ways to waste i agree with everything that you have said it is a, an extremely good movie Riz Ahmed is 
yeah, like I said, he's the one performance who might outdo Delroy Lindo. He is unbelievable in this movie. Get Riz Ahmed in more movies. The balance that he walks is a is very careful, and he manages it with aplomb. It's not the kind of stereotypically showy performance that could have come from from this kind of movie. You know, a disability movie is often one that wins somebody an award. He walks a line and I think handles the onset of that disability well. And in addition, Paul Racy especially is sort of a discovery. And this guy is, he's older. He's, his career has been going and yet he is a discovery to most of us. He's not even got his own Wikipedia page as an actor. And yet he comes on the scene as Joe, a, another man who became deaf as life went on, who helps Ruben through his program, which is for deaf addicts. And there is a scene in this movie, which I won't spoil because if you've not yet seen Sound of Metal, it needs to be seen without expectation. But there's a scene near the end of the film between the two of them where they reckon with the choice that Ruben has made. And it destroyed me because of the look on Paul's face. It makes you question all of life. I didn't cry this time, but I really should have been. I <laughs> Emotionally gutting. Uh, the other thing that I think is fascinating about Sound of Metal is its sound design. It's technically incredible, and for a small drama like this, it's not normally the technical side of things you come away wowed by, and yet Darius Martyr and his collaborators worked very hard to create an enveloping sound design that brings us into Ruben's point of view far better than even Riza Med's performance could do on its own, and it's... A sound very... editing bar none the yes. winner of sound editing this year yes i sincerely hope so it's a brilliant use of sound in addition to these incredible performances and a fascinating look at a community of people who are not often featured on film the deaf community uh, one that i believe has been well received um i would have to look into that but is generally inclusive and inviting in terms of the deaf community just all around a a very very good movie and one that I would strongly recommend you see if you have not seen it yet. It's not, you know, my number one. It's Christian's, but still, just so good. There are some films that just seem so perfectly tailor-made. Uh, and and I don't know if I'm meaning tailor-made for me or if I mean tailor-made for what it is that people are experiencing locked up. I think that this film... I think that this film makes you question where it is you're putting your worth into. And I think that that's a good thing. And I, I want to say one last thing about Sound of Metal before before I, I end with it. There are a couple of films on my top 20 that I can easily recommend to people. And for some reason, well, I know the reason, Sound of Metal is at the top for me because it's very easy to imagine this film going in a lot of different ways. When I was describing the film to a friend of mine, he immediately thought that it was going to go in the direction of Whiplash and of, of how Riz Ahmed's Ruben is going to learn how to become the greatest drummer of all time, even though he's deaf. That is not where this film goes. Now, I'm not going to spoil where this film goes, but it keeps you guessing. It keeps you questioning even the decisions that you make. And this is kind of just rehashing what I've said before, but Sound of Metal is... To me, the most... Actually, uh, no, yeah, yeah. It's the number one movie I'm recommending to people right now. Besides it just being my number one film. 
it's the number it's the easiest thing for me to recommend it's just so interesting because sound of metal at times is so hard to watch it's not necessarily <laughs> an easy recommendation but in terms of sheer quality i'm definitely on board with such a recommendation obviously it's my number five so no uh, no qualms here we had good lists we had good lists we you know our lists christian <laughs> I would love to recap them with you so we can get an, a nice, tidy 20 to 1 countdown for those listening at home. But I am first honored that you said we had good lists and not that I had a garbage list. <laughs> you don't have a garbage list. You have a very questionable entry, which, sure, you can have, and uh, I can live with it. The world is with me on Emma, Christian. You can't escape it. <laughs> Consensus is mine. <laughs> but yes, let us take a moment to recap our lists 20 to 1. Christian, please do the honors. Go first. All right. So at 20, The Vest of Night. At 19, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. At 18, Palm Springs. At 17, The Trial of the Chicago 7. At 16, Father, Soldier, Son. At 15, The Painter and the Thief. At 14, Blow the Man Down. At 13, The Boys in the Band. At 12, Nomadland. At 11, Mangrove. At 10, Bakurao. At 9, Boys Day. At 8, Soul. At 7, On the Rocks. 6 is Weathering with You. 5 is Sputnik. 4 is The Gentleman. 3 is The Five Bloods. Two is Minari, and one is Sound of Metal. At 20, I have The King of Staten Island. 19, Palm Springs. 18, The Invisible Man. 17 is Mank. 16 is The Trial of the Chicago 7. 15 is The Vast of Night. 14, Onward. 13, I'm Your Woman. 12, Borat, Subsequent Movie Film. 11, Birds of Prey. At 10, I have Tenet. 9 is Emma. 8 is Boy State. 7, Five Bloods. Six, Hamilton. Five, Sound of Metal. Four, Was Time. At number three, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Two, Was Soul. And at number one, Mangrove. Christian, I... before we fully distance ourselves from 2020 and then transition to talking about the future, specifically the future of this glorious podcast, do you have any regrets from 2020? Any movies that didn't live up to your expectations that you hoped would be on this list that weren't? Or maybe a movie you didn't get to that you had hoped to see and just didn't have the time for? I want to say that shame on you people who put your films into festivals and then set a February 27th release date because February 28th is the deadline for the Oscars or set a limited release for December 11th. And then a wide release for February 27th. Because I can't watch it for two more months. So guess what? You're not on the list. I am looking at so many different... Technically, Minari and Nomadland are some of those people. But I got to see them, so I'm not mad at them. But the rest of you... For shame. For shame. Yes, alas, we don't have our press badges yet. So we are still victim to not receiving screeners. <laughs> and being left out for some of the quote-unquote important movies of the year, at least some of the most critically praised movies of the year. We get to watch them with everybody else. But that's also a good thing about our list, though. Most of the films on our list are on Hulu, Netflix, or Prime, with Apple TV Plus also showing up here. It's true. A lot of streaming service originals that got featured on our lists. Very 
emblematic of 2020. Honestly, we didn't get too much into this, but I hope not it's how our lists go for the rest of eternity, but it might be because of the way business decisions are being made. We'll see. We will see how the future goes. Christian, the time is now. 2020 is done. It's over. It's gone. We get to look ahead to 2021. And we have some cool stuff coming down the pipe for the Cinema Drip podcast. And the first thing that we have to announce here is, of course, our very first blend of the month for 2021. Curated and programmed by none other than Christian. So I will let you do the honors of introducing and sharing our first movie that we'll be discussing on next week's episode. Much like the year 2020, the year 1973 is also a year. Ah. And therefore... <laughs> therefore in, insightful. Films, <laughs> films were released in 1973. If you ask me for the significance of 1973 in my life, there is none. That being said... We are going to begin our 1973 blend of the month with none other than the Bruce Lee classic, Enter the Dragon. Bruce Lee, I will reference this next week, is one of the only actors whose movies will keep my dad awake. So, figured why not? Could we get a guest appearance from your father on next week's episode, perhaps? Huh? Huh? No. <laughs> no, you may not. If only one day we'll have both of our dads on this podcast to <laughs> have a father-son episode. Can my dad get a translator? Aren't you his translator? Yeah, but that's like too much work for me. I don't know. <laughs> okay, as soon as we get a budget, we can hire a, a translator. <laughs> I, I'm excited. 1973 is going to be fun. I've never seen a Bruce Lee movie, and Enter the Dragon is one of his most popular. So this is going to be a fun way to kick off the year. It, I, It's just what a weird way to kick off the year in terms of relevancy and search engine optimization and <laughs> trying to attract new listeners. You know, kind of in a who cares mindset because it's just going to be a good time talking about Enter the Dragon. So I am I'm very much looking forward to it. Relevancy be damned. Wow, folks, our first episode of 2021. Here it is. It's done. Thank you so much for listening. If you've made it this far in the podcast, we do appreciate you. We sincerely love you for listening. Thank you for being here. Christian and I love putting these shows together, and it means a lot that there are people out there who listen. In terms of helping to support the show, we would obviously really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us reach new listeners, gets the word out. And I just need for my self-esteem. You know, those five-star reviews really keep me going. So a rating and a review would be lovely. You can also follow Christian and myself on Letterboxd, which we reference a lot on the show. But it's where we rate and review the things that we are watching. I just put in a an entry for The Born Identity, which I rewatched for the first time in a while. Still really good. I'm a fan. I just put in a couple entries for my top 20s. So... If you didn't get enough from Christian on this episode, you can get even more on Letterboxd in the form of the written word as opposed to the spoken word. Lastly, we are revitalizing our Twitter account. We would appreciate a follow. We would love to engage with people on social media as well. So you can find us at Cinema Drip Podcast, where we will be tweeting away, helping to spread the good word about the podcast on social media. Christian. Where can folks find Enter the Dragon to stream for next week's episode? 
You can find it on Netflix. Perfect. Find Enter the Dragon on Netflix. Give us a follow. Give us a review and a rating. But otherwise, thanks so much for listening. It's good to be back. As always, I'm Scott Lentz. He's Christian Ubius, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.